The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. And Moses led Israel onward from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a tree, and he cast it into the waters, and the waters were made sweet. There he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will diligently hearken to the voice of Yahweh your God, and will do that which is right in his eyes, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases upon you that I have put upon the Egyptians. For I am Yahweh who heals you. And they came to Elam, where were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. And we do pray that you would direct us in the truth, that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand and perceive this your word. Help us now uh, for your honor and glory and for the building up of your church, for the equipping of the saints. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tests. I think it's pretty safe to say that we've all taken them or encountered them in some form or fashion. One definition reads, Something, such as a series of questions or exercises for measuring the skill, knowledge, intelligence, capacities, or aptitudes of an individual or group. Another. A critical examination, observation, or evaluation. Or yet another. An ordeal or oath required as proof of conformity with a set of beliefs. Naturally, we think of a test in a school setting in which we've had to study a certain subject and then give an account of, uh, of the knowledge that we gained. Or for those with a driver's license, you've had to go through a driver's test in order to obtain it, which involved actually driving the car and performing various aspects of driving considered to be fundamental to good driving demonstrating a competency uh, of ability. Some people are known as not being good test takers. They get too nervous or anxious and then aren't able to perform well. Others can more than ably meet the challenge handling the pressure. But tests can come to us in a variety of ways, particularly tests of faith. Even as demonstrated in the text before us this morning, this first episode after the deliverance at the Red Sea. Undoubtedly, you remember what happened in chapter 14, where the salvation of Israel through the sea is detailed, a salvation that also included the destruction of Pharaoh and his chariot army, his chariot war machine, which brought glory to Yahweh. And then in chapter 15, that redemption is recounted in the Song of Moses, which then also looks ahead to the future enemies that Israel would face on the way to and in the conquest of the Promised Land, and ends declaring Yahweh's reign as king forever. And then we're told yet again that the waters covered Egypt, but Israel walked through on dry ground. The waters of judgment upon the Egyptians were the waters of salvation for the sons of Israel. 
And then we read of Miriam leading the women and dancing and singing, declaring the glorious triumph of Yahweh. So that brings us to the passage before us this morning where we first encounter a number of key words or terms that will uh, prove significant between here and chapter 17 and verse 16, such as test, waters, complain, and set out. Also here is the first of six episodes or stages leading to a seventh at Mount Sinai. You may recall that the Song of Moses can be organized in seven stanzas, with the seventh being that of rest and sanctuary. Well, similarly, Israel will meet six problems or crises along their journey to Sinai, where they will have rest when they meet Yahweh at His sanctuary. So here's, here's the first one this morning. And there's plenty here in these, in, just, in these few verses for us to consider, for our faith to be rightly challenged, and for us to have a fuller understanding of God's character and His way with His people. Verse 22, And Moses caused to set out Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out to the wilderness of Shur, and they walked three days in the wilderness and did not find water. Now, to state the obvious, they set out from the Red Sea. Uh, the best biblical evidence for wilderness, the wilderness of Shur is that it was uh, located in western Arabia and not in the northern part of the misnamed uh, Sinai Peninsula near the Mediterranean. This also places it in the general vicinity of Midian and makes more sense of the Red Sea crossing belonging at the northeast extension of the sea, now labeled the Gulf of Aqaba. This is hardly the first time we encounter Shur in the Bible and is actually the fourth of six times it's mentioned. The first is in Genesis 16 in relation to Hagar and Ishmael's expulsion by Abraham where we read, The angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. Then it's mentioned again in chapter 20 and verse 1 in relation to Abraham after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 19. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. The third and last time it's in Genesis is in chapter 25 in relation to the generations of Ishmael, where after the names are listed, we're told, These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breeds his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. The other two times that Shur is mentioned is in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15:7, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And then in 27.8, Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gershurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from as far uh, of the land from of old as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And perhaps you heard the explicit mention of Egypt in a few of those passages, as well as the mention of Havilah. Where is Havilah first uh, noted in Scripture? In Genesis chapter 2, A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. Now, maybe we're spending too much, uh, too much time going down this rabbit trail, but it's worth noting that, that Israel's travels, they, they aren't random. And that there's even a connection with the patriarchs, and what we read in Genesis can once again help inform our understanding of Exodus. Well, next we read that Israel walked for three days in the wilderness and didn't find any water. What's the significance of three days? Well, naturally, we associate it with Jesus' resurrection on the third day. 
But three days we should think of, or when we hear three days, we should think of it as midweek. It comes in the middle of a week. Of course, you might argue, well, there's seven days to a week. And that's true. But if you're resting on the seventh, and then that leaves you with six days for doing things, half of which is three, hence the halfway point. But a three-day period also conveys a time of crisis, which would certainly have been the disciples' experience after the crucifixion. But then... What comes after three days? Resurrection. So there's a sense that salvation comes in the middle before things get worse, so to speak. Uh, We've considered this before in relation to the Lord not allowing sin to mature. And while I don't think we'd uh, necessarily claim that Jesus came at the exact middle point of uh, the history of the world, it's possible that he did, we just don't know, yet we can figuratively say that he, he did, that he came to defeat Satan, sin, and death, and for the world to be put back on course, that man can fulfill what he was created to do. As one theologian observes, Satan used human beings to attack God. God uses human beings to attack Satan. And of course, Jesus was what? Fully God, fully man. And he's taken the world away from the devil and made it his own again. You know, the church then continues Jesus' ministry, this reclamation through the Holy Spirit, even as we're now serpent crushers, a truth we can distill from Paul's teaching in Romans 16. So Israel is three days into this wilderness walk, and again, what problem do they run into? They can't find any water, which is a legitimate problem when you're in the wilderness and have thousands, if not a couple million people that need water in order to survive. Verse 23, And they came to Marah, and they were not able to drink the water of Marah, for bitter it was, therefore called the name Marah. Mara means bitter, so we could even read it as they came to bitter and were not able to drink the water from bitter because it was bitter, therefore it's called bitter. So you, you get the point. And, 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 but this brings us back to a theme that we encountered in the opening chapter of Exodus, where we read, So they ruthlessly made the sons of Israel, this is the Egyptians, the sons of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick in all kinds of work in the field. For something to be bitter means that it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, which was literally the case with the water. But it can also be used to refer to an experience in life, as was the case for Israel in their slavery. It's also interesting to know that if we jump back to Genesis 26, where it recounts that Esau took two Hittite wives when he was 40 years old, what do we then read next in the text? They were bitterness of spirit for Isaac and for Rebekah. So it was distressing to them. So we can think of bitterness or bitter in that way as well. But not being able to drink the water should also remind us of the first plague when the Nile was turned to blood, when potable water had to be dug up by the Egyptians along the Nile. So Israel is facing a water crisis, so to speak. It won't be their last. But just having come through a water ordeal at the Red Sea... There's now this interesting contrast with the bitter waters with which they're faced. Verse 24, And murmured the people against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And the word murmur is, uh, murmured is sometimes rendered grumbled or complained, and, and that's fine. Uh, but notice that the text is specific to say that they're murmuring against Moses. Yes, the people are concerned about what they're going to drink, But the text is conveying this kind of talking between the people, this low rumbling among them, and then questioning 
really Moses' leadership. See, he's the one who's caused them to set out in verse 22. He's the leader. Now, we naturally assume the pillar of cloud and fire is leading, but we're not explicitly told that here. And so the focus in the text is on Moses. And a significant point in support of this reading of the, of, of the text in this way is that this particular verb um, is used only one time outside of the wilderness wandering accounts in Exodus and Numbers. And each time, the preposition against is used. And the murmuring is directed against Moses or Aaron or Moses and Aaron or even Yahweh himself. Now, of course, the murmuring here is ultimately against Yahweh since he's the one who appointed the leaders who put Moses in charge. And that eventually expresses itself as open rebellion against him as demonstrated in Numbers 14. And granted, we're not there yet, but remember that Israel is, they're learning to march. They're learning to take orders. They're in boot camp, as it were, and they're already grumbling against the guy giving the orders. Now, a number of commentators contend that Israel should have gone straight to Yahweh with their complaint and not to Moses, uh, but that might be trying to prove too much. While valid on one hand, and certainly the people could have directly appealed to Yahweh, Moses is their leader and has acted as an intercessor between Yahweh and Israel for some time now. And so for them to appeal to Moses isn't necessarily out of place. Nevertheless, the tone of the text seems to fall more along the lines of their complaining against Moses more than coming to him for help. Consider Moses' reaction in verse 25. And he cried out to Yahweh. And Yahweh directed him to a tree and he threw it into the water and became sweet the water. See, the fact that Moses cries out to Yahweh seems to reflect some urgency on his part. He doesn't calmly ask Yahweh, what do I do? But then what's going on with the next part of the verse? It, it sounds a little bit weird. Well, that's true to a degree, but there's also some repetition of vocabulary from early in Exodus. Uh, so perhaps that will help us understand what's going on. Now, the word I've translated directed, other translated render showed, uh, but the particular form of this word is typically associated with teaching or instruction. And that seems to be uh, the sense. It was used back in chapter 4 and verse 15 at Sinai when Yahweh promises to be with Moses' mouth and Aaron's mouth and will direct, teach, instruct them what they are to do. So Yahweh is now teaching Moses about this particular tree and that by putting it in the bitter waters, they're made sweet. Whether we are to understand this as a miraculous sweetening or whether Yahweh is simply imparting some wilderness knowledge to Moses is debated. But the text is clear to say that it was a tree, not a log, not a stick or a piece of bark from the tree. Now, how Moses put the tree in the water or if he put um, how he did that or if he put all of the tree in the water, etc., we're not told. You know, the details were given are the details we're supposed to have. And the text says it was a tree. Well, where have kind of trees already made an appearance in Exodus, particularly in relation to Moses? Well, the trees in Egypt that were destroyed by hail and locusts, but uh, we can think of those, but we should probably make the connection between the function of that this tree serves to sweeten the waters and Moses' staff. Still more back in chapter 4, Moses threw his rod, his staff on the ground, and it became a serpent. Here he threw the tree into the water. 
So God uses these trees to bring about his purposes, to bring about these actions of healing, deliverance, etc. But still more, we need to understand that trees represent people. And this is well established in Scripture. One of the clearest examples is found in Judges 9, where men are compared to different types of trees. And in Mark chapter 8, when Jesus heals the blind man, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. Now, we often take that to mean that the man's sight wasn't fully restored, which is evident in the text since Jesus does something further for him to see clearly. But it's hardly accidental that the men look like trees. And if we're to understand the forward focus of the symbolism, then the tree in the water is not the cross, but Jesus himself. While we won't pursue it in detail this morning, there's certainly tree of life symbolism to be seen here, even as we compare what we read in Genesis 2 and 3 with what we later find in Revelation 22. Or we can even add the symbolism we find in Ezekiel 47 of the water flowing from the temple and the healing that's produced by the trees along the banks of the river. You see, these things aren't accidental, but build throughout the scriptures, and our text this morning is related to these other passages. Now, there's still a line of verse 25 left for us to consider, and I want to include it with our examination of verse 26 because here we're met with a bit of a translational challenge. While most translations and commentators seem fairly uniform about how to read the text, the Hebrew text is pretty clear and the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, agrees with the Hebrew. And basically the issue is that most translations read as if it's Israel being spoken to in the plural when in fact that's not what's written. Here's the text. There he set to him a statute and a judgment, and there he tested him. And he said, If to hear you, if to hear you hear the voice of Yahweh your God, and the, and the upright in his eyes you do, and listen to his commandments and keep all his statutes, all the sickness which I set on Egypt I will not set upon you, for I am Yahweh your healing one. Now the last line of verse 25, it reads, Him, singular and not them, plural. And then verse 26, the you and the your are also singular and not plural. So this presents, with, presents us with the challenge as to whom Yahweh is addressing and who is really being tested. Again, the typical English translations will lead you to think it's Israel that's being tested. And that seems to make a lot of sense and is certainly the path of least resistance, as it were. But the case can also be made that Moses is the one being tested here, and I, I, I think that's how we're to understand what's taking place. The same word is used at the beginning of Genesis 22 where we read, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as an ascension offering on the mountains of which I shall tell you. So just as Abraham's obedience was tested, here Moses' obedience is tested. And given the fact that his leadership is being challenged by Israel's murmuring, then perhaps that brings this test even more sharply into focus. See, Moses as Israel's leader is being tested first. In the next chapter, Israel is directly tested. And then in chapter 17, Israel tests Yahweh. Now, perhaps we can say that Israel is, um, you know, being, is also being tested here, but that doesn't seem to be the emphasis given the way these particular verses are written. And also, just as an aside, we might think, well, maybe the Lord is speaking of Israel as in the singular, but that just doesn't match what we find in, in the text. It would be actually forcing on the text to read it that way. So, 
So Yahweh establishes a statute and judgment or an ordinance. He sets forth these principles of what Moses' leadership is going to look like. And not surprisingly, it entails obedience. Hearing and doing what Yahweh commands, which will result in health and life, and not the judgments that came upon Egypt. And the language that we hear of statutes and ordinances at this point will be significantly expanded at Sinai. This foreshadows what's to come in greater detail for all of Israel. The mention of all the sickness or disease of Egypt seems a bit odd since the plagues haven't been referred to in that fashion before. But that does seem to be the implication here and the term will be used again in chapter 3 and verse 25 where Yahweh promises Israel health in the promised land. Now in setting the context of these verses is directed to Moses. Again, there's, there's still a sense that these realities are also true of Israel, even as we'll go on to see. But Moses is to lead the way, setting an example for the people to follow. Later in Israel's history, when the monarchy is established, what's the way of blessing and fruitfulness? Obedience to Yahweh's commands. Even in the New Testament, what's the fundamental requirement for those who are leaders in the church? Obedience to Jesus. And what does the writer to the Hebrews instruct in chapter 13? Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word uh, to you, the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So the implication is that they're setting an example for you to follow. Or even as Paul admonishes to Timothy and Titus, uh, uh, his admonitions to them bear out that they're to be examples in their conduct to the church. And just as those letters are, are to young pastors, primarily written to them about how the church is to be ordered and to operate, particularly in relation to leadership, there are still principles that, that trickle down for all believers. And so I think we, are to, we can see that here with this test of Moses. Well, in contrast to the diseases of Egypt, Yahweh is to Moses, your healing one. Again, your is, is singular. And Moses seems to be the first recipient of this truth. <coughs> And doesn't Yahweh as the healing one point us forward to Jesus and the healing that was a chief characteristic of his ministry? And doesn't this indicate that our God is highly consistent in his character? That the Yahweh of the Exodus from Egypt is the Yahweh of the incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. Or as Charles Wesley penned in that glorious Christmas carol alluding to Malachi 4.2. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. So the covenant keeper heals. He provides food and health and strength. And these are the blessings of covenant obedience. And make no mistake, the way of obedience is the way to enjoy the Lord's promises. Now, this is true for those who are put in positions to lead God's people and is true of all of God's people. Well, finally, verse 27, which is full of, uh, of juicy details. And they came to Elam and there 12 springs of water and 70 date palm trees and they encamped there above the waters. Now, the name Elam means palms. Interestingly enough, the locations of Mara and Elam uh, may be known today, having uh, found bitter water about three days' journey from the Red Sea, as well as a grove of palm trees where 12 wells are still clearly delineated. But what's the significance of the numbers and imagery here? Well, 12 we should equate with the 12 tribes of Israel, 
And the number 70, as those of you who are in Sunday school know, we should associate with the nations, as we learn from Genesis 10, where the table of nations is found. In addition, we can make the connection that water is life, and Israel was to bring life to the nations. Still more, if we understand these are date palm trees, then that means they have dates, which is what? Well, it's a fruit. Dates are sweet. Early in the text, a tree was used to make bitter water sweet. And now here you have sweet trees, so to speak. But with all this tree and fruit and water imagery, what are we rightly reminded of? Oh, the Garden of Eden. See, this oasis sanctuary echoes that sanctuary, but also points forward to other sanctuaries, even the tabernacle, but also Solomon's temple, which specifically had palm trees engraved on the walls, surfaces, and doors. Also in Ezekiel's vision of a new temple in chapter 41, we read this about the inner part of the temple. It was carved of cherubim and palm trees, a palm tree between cherub and cherub. Every cherub had two faces, a human face toward the palm tree on the one side and the face of young lion toward the palm tree on the other side. They were carved on the whole temple all around. From the floor to above the door, cherubim and palm trees were carved, similar to the wall of the name. Later in Ezekiel, what flows out of the temple, even as we heard earlier? Well, a river, life-giving waters, which pictures the church from whom flow the rivers of living water, the Holy Spirit. Even as Jesus teaches at the end of John 7, as we noted a couple of weeks ago. And one last detail that's interesting to think about. The text says that they encamped, that they camped on or above the water. See, that's what the preposition used there typically means. Now, of course, they were camped on the ground, and the water was below them in the ground. Uh, but above the water still expresses elevation, that they're on high ground, so to speak which coincides with sanctuary imagery from beginning to end in the Bible. So we have this picture of of Israel at this oasis sanctuary in the wilderness and the Lord supplying their needs, providing them with food and drink for the journey, with life-giving waters, but that this just isn't for their own sakes, but for the calling that He's placed upon them. Remember, Yahweh didn't just save Israel, didn't save them just to save them, but also gave them a mission. And that's certainly true for us as the church today. And so we come to this sanctuary, this oasis, and we receive food and drink, and we taste and see that the Lord is good, and we find that His law, His rules, His statutes, His word is sweet, and that in keeping them there is great reward. And we understand that fundamental, that fundamental to our mission is obedience. And we understand that as a general rule, a life of obedience to God leads to well-being and disobedience leads to woe. Now, of course, we're not mechanistic about this in thinking that God owes us somehow and so we control Him through our obedience. No, that's to think like Pharisees and hopefully we're too well acquainted with the book of Job and Jesus teaching in John 9 to fall into that trap. Rather, by faith we move forward with the expectation that with covenant faithfulness comes covenant blessing. And that the Lord will make good on His promises to His people and that our obedience will be blessed. Again, this is generally true. And what we can expect to be our experience in this life. But we also know that attendant to the life of faith are times of testing and trials. 
But what's the point of the testing? Maturity. Greater faithfulness. You know, don't forget that Jesus was tested. And that in no way meant that the Father was displeased with him. You know, consider the, the, consider the sequence. Jesus goes from baptism to testing in the wilderness. Well, similarly, Israel and Moses go from their baptism through the Red Sea to the wilderness. The pattern isn't accidental. And so we have a Savior who understands those times of testing and even more accurately than we do ourselves. But what greater hope and comfort can we have in the midst of such times? See, Jesus can make the bitter sweet. He can transform the tests and trials that come to our lives. Think about it. Argue, let's, let's, let's argue from the greater to the lesser. If he can transform death into life, if he can turn graveyards into gardens through his death and resurrection, then surely we can be sure of him as we face the tests and difficulties through which he leads us. He's the author and finisher of faith. He has gone before his people. He has blazed the trail and leads the way. And so obediently follow the Lord Jesus, your healing one. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word. And we do pray that you would impress it evermore upon our hearts and lives that we might bear fruit that is pleasing to you, that is honoring and glorifying to you. And indeed, may we be sure of you and your promises and may you grant to us more hope for the life that is lived in obedience to you. Indeed, strengthen our faith to this end, we humbly ask, and by your Spirit, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.